came to the thing last night. Plenty of food, right? No one was short on things to eat. And so we are always having to discipline ourselves to eat less. We count calories, or at least that's what I do. We count calories. We, we you know, my brother and I, we exercise more so we can eat more, right? You know, because we eat too much here. But, you know, that's actually a really unique time in history. You know, most people were really worried about getting enough food, like famines and things like this. I mean, they were just devastating. And so during the time that this was written, there was some famines going on. We know this because there was a guy named Tiberius Claudius Dinipus, and he was made the curator of the grain supply three different times in Corinth. That meant three different times they had famines bad enough, they had to elect him as a special representative to be one who is the curator of the grain supply. So what he would do is he would try to be someone that would manipulate the prices. So when you have like not enough food and you're the person that has the food, what do you do? You hoard it, you jack the price up, and you say, oh, you'd like to eat lunch? Well, wouldn't that be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, geez, I'm kind of short, but you know, if you give me everything you own, I might be able to drum some up for you. And so this person would be uh, elected, and his job was try to make deals and manipulate things that, so everyone in the place wouldn't starve. And Corinth was kind of an interesting place because when they established Corinth, it was for this trading, right? It was this trade route. We talked about that in the first weeks. And so when they did it, they didn't really, they didn't really think about how they were going to get fed. Like they weren't self-sufficient in their growing of food. They got food from other places. You know, we really do that now. Like how many of us in this room help the process of us getting food? Like, if we thought about it, maybe some of us could take some credit, maybe. But for the most part, none of us do anything that gets the food. We go to the grocery store, and it's there, and we buy it. We don't grow it. We don't package it. We don't do anything. We just go, and it's there. And that's somewhat what they had. As a matter of fact, it was probably one of the things that made Rome so effective was they were such great food growers. The problem is, is when the food ran out, you had riots and issues, and we know that they had these particular famines. And as a matter of fact, there was a, a time in which there was a quote about the, uh, a famine that was happening in Egypt that said, if the, if the River Nile ever overfloods past 16 feet, our crops won't grow right. And one year, it flooded to 18 feet, and there was a terrible famine. Suddenly, the wonderful breadbasket, this beautiful uh, land-growing force that was the Nile River failed them one year. And guess who hurts? All of the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire started hurting in food, people would start to revolt. I mean, you just imagine like, hey, I'm in the Roman Empire. I'm in this giant city of the city of Rome. And, you know, I don't like own a farm and I don't have any food. Um, I can either watch my children starve or I can, oh, I don't know, like go to the palace and storm the gates or something, right? I mean, something. You got to do something. You're dying. And this was taking place. And so this, we know this was happening in the 40s and 50s. They had these particular famines that were going on. And this is the present distress. And when it talks about later on that thinking this is the end times, either maybe they were thinking it was the end times or something else. But certainly Mark, when he talks about the end times, what is one of the marks of the end times? Famines, right? Famines. Well, I think there was a major famine going on and it is affecting what he is saying here. I could give you, there's an entire journal article written about it, all the things that talk about the famines, and I'll, I'll just stop there, and you'll have to trust me. If you want to read it, you can. We go on to verse 27. It says, are you bound to a wife? 
Are you engaged to a wife? Do you do not seek to be free? Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So what does he say here? You're going to get married, or if you're married, just stay as you are. We go on to verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. It's okay. You can marry. I'm suggesting you don't because of the present distress. Like, it's probably a bad idea. You have kids. Maybe you're not going to be able to feed them. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Verse 21, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives as though they had none. So this is the time at which it says the appointed time has grown very short. And this is the idea that we've kind of come that maybe they thought the end times are coming. But actually, this could mean they changed the way the calendar worked at this particular time in Roman history. And it could be a reference to that and could have nothing to do with them thinking that Jesus was coming back like tomorrow. Maybe. I mean, I might be wrong about that. But it's very, very interesting. Some of these historical factors that may be coloring it sometimes give us very interesting insights. So the appointed time is going very short. They've actually changed the calendar possibly. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Worldly pleasures were a difficult thing. As a matter of fact, when you got married, if you were a Jew, they had an entire list of all the things that was expected of a husband had to, to supply to his wife. It was like, oh, you're getting married? Here's the list. You have to do all these things for your wife. Of course, if you're not married, guess what? You don't have a list. You don't have to do it. Traveling would have been so much easier. You know, Bethany and I joke, you know, we were, we were both single a long time before we get married. We go, oh, yeah, I remember when we used to travel, you know, when I was by myself. It's just like, oh, you got a couch? Great, you know? No problem. Sleep on the floor. You can go anywhere. Either, any, when we were by ourselves, we could just go anywhere, crash anywhere. It was all so simple. Now that we're married, you know, we don't even have any kids. And it's just like everyone, you know, kind of, oh, we got to have a double bed and make sure we have a spare room and all this stuff. And it suddenly got all complicated, right? Life gets complicated when you get married. And if, you, if you're not married, you're, you're more free to be able to do things that you're, you can't do when you do get married. We go on to verse 30, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. The present form of the world is passing away could be more of this eschatological idea that the end times are coming, or I would argue what it means is there is upheaval within the Roman government. We're having famines. There's problems. Then, of course, by the time of AD 69 with Nero and all that, the, the Roman Empire ends up breaking up. So he may not be saying, I'm, we're, I'm saying the world's ending soon. I'm saying that Rome, in its present form, is ending soon. Rome was the world then. That there was no world to any of them other than Rome. And it was going to be the present form of it was passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He once again mentions the freedom. Now, I had read a quote to you early on in a few sermons ago about how this seems to be a chapter that's really down on marriage. I want to say it again. It's down on marriage because of the present distress. It is really 
giving advice. When you have a famine, starting, it's not a good time to start a family. In the same way, you might say, oh, you're 17, you're madly in love, you think you need to get married and start having kids. You might say, I'm not saying getting married is bad. I'm not saying having kids is bad. I'm just saying maybe now's, maybe now's not a great time to do it, right? And I think that's what Paul's arguing here. Now may not be the time. We go on to verse 34, and it says, And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's not saying it's wrong to get married. You can't get married. He's just, you know, he, he's just saying, you know, maybe now is not a good time. But to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And we see what's always the main goal when he's talking about these things. What, what, why? What, what, what does he want at the end? So you're devoted to the Lord. What will ultimately help you serve the Lord the best? You know, sometimes when we think about serving the Lord in our own lives, it is just not the same for everybody. It's just not the same with everybody. You live in China, you live in Germany, you live in some other place. How your life may look that will best serve the Lord may not be how it looks for me or for you. We all serve the Lord. We all may do it a little bit differently. And in Corinth, they had their issues that they were going through. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving, we go on to this issue again, behaving properly toward his betrothed. If his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. So he once again emphasizes, hey, you want to get married, I'm not telling you you can't. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control. So if you don't really, really want to get married, if your passions are under control and is determined in this this in his heart to keep her in his betrothed, he will do well. So if you can remain as you are and not get married, you've done well. So then he who marries, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So he's recommending at this time the best decision would be to refrain. But he still says those who marries, he does well. I keep stressing that this is unique because if you think about like Catholic theology, and, and I don't think it's like totally illegal for priests to get married, but they're like, I mean, they have in history, and it's kind of complicated, but they really sort of stress like it's, you know, it's good. I mean, like there's like, it's better. You should probably, you know, look, it says right here in the Bible, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to not get married, which is ironic because Protestants are kind of the opposite almost. As a person who was single looking for a pastor job at one point in my life, I can tell you, not being married and getting a job as a pastor doesn't go very well together. So you have the Catholic Church who's like, you get married, you're no. The Protestant Church is, if you're not married, you're not a no, but you're a probably not. Uh, so it's kind of backwards. And I would say this, that who's right? Is it, should you be married or, or should you be single? And I would say, well, there's good things about both. There's good things about both. When you're single, you can work a thousand hours and you're neglecting no one. And when you're married and you work a thousand hours, it's more complicated, you know? It's more complicated. <laughs> of course, you have all kinds of benefits of someone to help you and someone to balance and other talents to bring. There's, there's all kinds of benefits to being married as well, but you have this both 
things there. So I don't want, I think it is a mistake to overstress that singleness is just the greatest thing in the world. And I also think it's a mistake to say, well, you got to be married or, or you know, I mean, you got you know, to be married. I mean, surely we can't consider you unless you're married. I, I think that is a mistake as well. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So, I'm going to read you a quote. As Fee and others have suggested, the obvious message of these verses is that a Christian widow was not subjected to the Jewish custom of Leverite marriage. This Old Testament law said that a Jewish woman whose husband died childless had to marry her brother-in-law until she had a child. This was still practiced in the first century, though it was becoming less common. Paul stated that it was unnecessary for a Christian widow. She could marry or not marry whomever she wished. So we look at this and we say, why is it saying that if the husband dies, she's free to marry whomever she wishes? We might think that means, well, that's the time you can remarry, but other times you can't, right? So when we think about whether if you're divorced, can you get remarried? Well, I mean, maybe not. I mean, it says here if, you're, if your spouse dies, you can. Because if the issue was, I'm trying, if the question was, in what circumstances can we be remarried? If that was the question, and this was the answer, guess what that would mean? If you're divorced, you can't get remarried. But if the question was, do we have to follow the Old Testament law of Leverite marriage where we have to marry our brother-in-law if we don't have any kids? If that's the question, then the answer is no. If, they, if your husband dies, you can marry whoever you want. We know about this kind of idea from Matthew. It says, the same day Sadducees came to him, Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there are seven brothers among us, so on and so forth it goes, right? They asked him about the specific rule. There was debate on how this should go. And so it seems very likely that Paul was addressing this particular issue. Does a woman need to marry a family member if she doesn't have any kids? No. She can marry whoever she wants. And what's also interesting about it is it says she is free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord, because if you look in the Mishnah, and this the Mishnah is the oral tradition that ended up getting, getting written down, the Mishnah will also say something like you're free to remarry, but they don't say in the Lord, they say you are free to remarry a Jew. You are free to remarry a Jew. So by Paul saying you're free to marry whoever you want, and the only restriction is in the Lord, meaning you have to marry another Christian, actually was much more freeing than it used to be. It used to be you had to marry another Jew. Now, it's no, that's Jew, Jew, Gentile, that doesn't matter. You just have to marry another Christian. So if your spouse dies, that is how you need to handle it. Another reason why you would no longer need to do this is related to land ownership. So you guys, you know, about the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, they gave all the land back to the families. Well, if the land was going to be given back to all the families every year, that means someone in that family line 
had to continually be, be perpetuated. Otherwise, there was no one to return the land to. So if you're a son, you have a wife, and you die, you need, your, you need the line to keep going. Like, you have to figure out a way to keep the line going. And so some of these Old Testament rules were to help keep the land within the family line of the family, because otherwise they had nowhere to give the land back to at the year of Jubilee. But now guess what? We're in the New Testament now, right? And so do we have a year of Jubilee anymore? I mean, not like they practiced it particularly well back then anyway, but now we don't do it at all. So do we need to have a situation where we give the land back to the family? No. So do you need to marry a Jew? Do you need to marry your brother? No. You just, you can marry whoever you want if your spouse dies. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is once again. Because of the present distress, he recommends she stay unmarried. And I think, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. You know, many commentators have misunderstood what Paul was trying to say here, and I've concluded that Paul thought a marriage could only end in death. It's an understandable mistake. When you read this passage, you can see it seems like maybe. What he's saying here is the only way a marriage is ever dissolved is through death. And I'm saying, if you ask the right questions, it does say that. If you ask different questions, these answers mean something else. So I do not think that Paul is arguing that the only way to dissolve a marriage is through death. He's saying, no, you don't have to, like, you know, marry a brother-in-law. You don't have to marry a Jew. You're free to marry whoever you want. Now, as we think about how Paul continually told them that they should do these things in the present distress, I'd like us to think about this. Think about your life. You may have, you may have distress in your life, or you may have it good. You may have it the best your life's ever been. Things may be going great. Things may be going hard. And what should we be thinking about if we think about how Paul dealt with the distress in 1 Corinthians 7? What would be best to serve the Lord? How do I use and handle my present distress to serve the Lord? And, or how do I use how great my life is right now to serve the Lord? Maybe you're, maybe you're retired and you have more free time than you ever have. Maybe you're younger and you got more energy than you're ever going to have. The things that you are given right now in your life, are you thinking to yourself, how am I using my circumstances to serve the Lord the best I can? Am I really surrendering my life to Christ? Paul here is asking them to surrender their marriages, what they think they're going to do about whether they're going to get married or not. Surrender it over to God. That is such a big ask, right? So many of us, oh, I've been planning my wedding since I was whatever. And he says, no, no, no. Serving the Lord is more important than the dress you picked out when you were 15. And how are we? We're probably not picking dresses out, but how are we using our present circumstances? And we've truly surrendered our life to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you this morning, and I just pray that uh, if we haven't surrendered, if there's if there's things about our circumstances that we are kind of holding and keeping to ourselves and using them for our own selfish benefit, 
I just pray we would reevaluate and say, Am I, have I really surrendered everything to Christ? Have I really given it all over to him? Lord, I just pray that you would work in each of our hearts, that we would surrender all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.